Second Peter chapter one. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Numbers 23.19 It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18 God's word is truth. He does not, he would not, he cannot, because of his very nature, he cannot use deception when it comes to the impartation of His Word, or really anything else where God is concerned. But where His Word is concerned, He does not use deception. Whether it be an author of a book, or how a book was written, or how a letter uh, was maintained, and God oversees His Word to perform it. He said as much to Jeremiah, I have overseen, I oversee my Word to perform it. He's going to make sure of it. One of the things that gives me great comfort and great confidence in the Bible as the complete Word of God, as infallible and and unaltered, is that He's capable of giving us His Word and keeping it across the centuries. I mean, if He's truly God, do we really think that He would allow His Word to become corrupted? And yet the authenticity of 2 Peter has been heavily contested, especially among the modern scholars. Perhaps some because they can't stomach the stirring prophetic denunciations of the false prophets. That is strong in chapter 2, and we'll get into that next week. Others are disturbed when they get to chapter 3 by the graphic depiction of the end of the world, of the destruction of the universe. And how Peter describes that and how it will happen. They don't like to read that. But primarily, many modern scholars call Second Peter, quote, a fictional forgery written under a pseudonym, or even worse, it's been called the ugly stepchild of the New Testament. The ugly stepchild, hardly. Try precious. Precious. I'm not talking about a ring, my precious. I'm talking about the word that Peter, the big fisherman, likes to use and uses a lot. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, the word like, or same there, those who have received of the same kind or a faith like ours, is the word esotimus, which is precious. The King James even translates this, to those who have received a precious faith. We have a precious faith. Now again, the big fisherman is the one who is saying this. A precious faith. The word precious, the root word is timios, and this word isotimos literally means equally valued. So those who have a faith equally valuable to ours. Those who have a faith that is just as highly honored as our faith. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. You see, my faith is no more valuable than yours. Nor is it any less valuable. Your faith and mine, our faith, is precious. 
It is highly valued. Peter uses this word a lot. He uses it more than any other New Testament writer. Which is funny to me, again, because this is a big fisherman. How many fishermen do you hear out there saying, Hey, hey, toss me that precious net. You know? i got to pull on my precious boots. I mean, it's not a fisherman's word. But Peter uses it six times in his first letter. When he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold. 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about this precious value. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And then he says to those who have a faith of the same kind as precious as ours, and down in verse 4 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. This is a precious word. And again, when you think precious, (laughs) don't think Gollum. And don't think, you know, silly or affected. Think instead, precious stone. Think diamonds, emeralds, rubies. Our faith is precious. And Peter uses this word again and again and again. Take care that you never call something ugly what God has called precious. I have this conversation with my children sometimes. When they're feeling especially disheveled or ugly. If I ever hear those words come out of any of my kids' mouths, and if you have parented teenagers, of course you've heard it, I'm so ugly. Don't you dare call ugly what God has made precious. God doesn't create mistakes and junk and messes. When He makes you, creates you to be His precious people. And to be filled then with a precious faith. And this word is a precious word. It is God's highly valued word through His bondservant, Simon Peter. And Simon Peter lists himself first two words out. Simon Peter, who wrote the letter. Simon Peter did. I think it's also interesting that he describes himself as a bondservant and an apostle. And I don't know any other faith where that works. Where truly to be an apostle is to be the lowest servant of all. Where to to lead is is to be beneath. It's to put yourself under. It's to serve others. Which is the whole mentality of Jesus and of following Him. You want to be great? You need to be least. You want to be apostolic? Be a bondservant. And that's Peter. And I am absolutely sure and tell you with this assurance that Peter did pen this letter that he's the one who sent it out how do we know this some further marks of legitimacy and just a few things I think that are important to know before we go any further in the letter to understand where it came from first of all you need to know that 2nd Peter is authenticated internally that is within the letter itself as I said beginning right in the first verse with the first two words his name Shimon Petros Shimon Petros Sandy Pebble Right, And we talked about the meaning of his name when we were studying First Peter, but he leads out with his name. And some people say, nah, it's, it's a pseudonym. 
It's not actually Peter. It's someone using his name to be able to send this out and move it out. And I remind you, God does not use deception to impart his word. Even in the slightest. If this letter was not from Peter, it would not be in the word of God. Oh, Rick, you're simple-minded. I'll give you more. In verse 14... We see that this authentication, this letter bears an allusion to his impending death when he says, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and right at the time this letter came out, right around that time, Peter was killed. So he declares what he knows to happen. It's supported in the letter. It happened historically. He says, my death is Imminent as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me back in John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now. And he meant to the cross. But you will follow later. You can't follow me now, Peter, but you're going to follow me later. You're going to go where I'm going. John 21, verse 18. When you grow old, Jesus said, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And John tells us this, he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Again, internal authenticity here. Verses 16 and 18 of chapter 1, which we studied on Sunday morning, the author of this letter claims a personal eyewitness testimony to the transfiguration of Jesus. So whoever authored this book had to be there, had to see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. So let's go back and consider that. Matthew 17 verse 1 tells us, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. James or Jacob already wrote another letter, wouldn't need to use Peter's name. John certainly wouldn't need to use Peter's name. Writing the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. So we're talking about Peter, the eyewitness of what happened on that mountain. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Refer back to the first letter that Peter wrote, saying, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember what the words, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he refers back to his first letter. And again, there's more that we could do. I'm not going to waste, or, or at least spend a lot of time on it right now. But the authenticity of the letter is internal. It is also external. It's external. By the way, before I get to external, it's internally authenticated in the entire Bible. That is the teachings of this letter parallel and are consistent with everything else in Scripture. He doesn't go off. He doesn't color outside the lines. You know, everything is supported by the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and substantially so. In fact, in this letter, you're not going to learn anything new that hasn't been taught, that isn't part of the Word of God. Applied differently, and shared, and truly inspired, but it's all backed up. And it all parallels and aligns with Scripture. So internally, both in the letter itself and in Scripture itself, but Second Peter has also been authenticated externally. Meaning what? Meaning if you go all the way back to the early church fathers, and I'm talking about around 150 to 180 A.D., 
man by the name of Irenaeus, who you've heard me mention Irenaeus before, or Clement of Alexandria in 200 AD, or Cyprian in 240, that these guys within a hundred years or so of this letter, even less, these were all familiar with or quoted from Second Peter. Referred to Second Peter and obviously had no problem with it being authentic. In fact, it only started to be questioned in around the 4th century and that on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. And by people who were, you know, the further out they got, some raised issues. But even those who raised issues didn't withdraw Second Peter from the canon of Scripture. There was external evidence. Peter, Second uh, Peter would have been a tough forgery to pull off. That's a third thing to note. To write a letter and use Peter's name and try to promote it as authentic would have been very difficult to do. Why is it questioned? Well, there are some scholars who, who look at some things that were taking place between about 200 B.C. and 300 A.D., actually a collection of Jewish books called the Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha, fun word to say, has nothing to do with swine, but the Pseudepigrapha were all written, they were these farewell discourses with titles like A Testament of Job, A Testament of Moses, A Testament of Solomon, or A Testament of Adam. The pseudepigrapha, I even practiced it. I sat in my office and went, pseudepigrapha. Anyway, these, these books, this collection, at the date and time they came out, could not have possibly been written by who they named in the titles of the books. You know, a testament of Adam coming out 200 years before Christ, when Adam would have been thousands of years before, that doesn't work. Well, obviously... And everybody knew it, and they were written more in honorary form, kind of like we might see a devotional book, like the Prayer of Jabez. No one goes into a a Christian bookstore to pick up the Prayer of Jabez thinking that Jabez wrote the book. Okay, He, He didn't. He prayed the prayer. The book's all written about that. Well, it was the same kind of thing. All of these came out, again, from 200 B.C. to 300 A.D., across about a 500 year period of time. And so, some scholars came along and said, well then, clearly, Second Peter falls into that category. It's, it's just a, 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 you know someone using his name to promote a book. But it, it would not have worked in that time. And in fact, a man by the name of L.R. Donaldson, who is an expert in pseudepigraphy, <laughs> said, no one ever seems to have accepted a document as religiously and philosophically prescriptive which was known to be forged. The early Christians condemned any kind of book that was pseudonymous. Any book that would have been written under a pseudonym, the early church said, no, that's not canon. We will not accept that. And they were sticklers about it. Wanting to be sure that if any book or letter was added into the New Testament, that it was by those who walked with and knew Jesus and were inspired by Him. That aligned perfectly with the rest of Scripture. They would not have allowed a letter to make its way in. And by the way, there were plenty. There were plenty that came out around 100, 120, 150 A.D. that were good devotional works, probably written by good Christian people, they didn't use pseudonyms, but they also none of them made it into Scripture. If you've ever heard of the Shepherd of Hermas, is an early work. And there's some beautiful writing in the Shepherd of Hermas, but it was not found to be inspired. 
So just because we're 2,000 years out, people are looking back, doesn't mean people 2,000 years ago were idiots and didn't know how to put Scripture together and didn't know what was God's Word and what was not. They knew. And they were incredibly careful with the whole thing. So why has Second Peter been so modernly undermined, aside from this pseudepigrapha? A couple of things to note. There's a difference in writing style between First Peter and Second Peter. Now, if we were all Greek scholars here, we would see it pretty clearly immediately. First Peter is written in this excellent Greek, and something you can notice if you if you look closely is First Peter has some of those long religious or, or long theological sentences, kind of like the letters of Paul. You know, what we would call kind of a run-on, but amazing long sentences. You don't find that as much in Second Peter. In fact, First Peter is this excellent Greek. Second Peter comes off more bombastic, which I kind of like. And I'll tell you why. Peter himself, I think, explains the difference between First Peter and Second Peter and why they are written or come off with different kind of language or at least writing style. Uh, Peter says in First Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Through Silvanus. Probably an amanuensis or a secretary for Peter in the writing of First Peter. So the language would have been different, would have been written differently as as Peter dictated and Silas, Silvanus, writing it down and and reorganizing and saying, well, how about we say it this way, Peter, or whatever. And, of course, the Holy Spirit inspiring that all the way through. Well, the second letter is considered more bombastic. Well, that fits Peter. Anybody bombastic among the apostles? It was Peter, Captain Footenmouth. So this letter, this fits Even the personality that we have come to know and appreciate in Peter. So a difference in writing style, that's easily explained. Secondly, uh, a disparate language. What's interesting in 2 Peter is as it comes along, and even 1 Peter has some of this that confuse some of the scholars, is the heavy use of culturally Greek themes that cause some people to wonder how a Galilean fisherman could be so Greek. You know, even in a moment, we'll see where he refers to the divine nature, partaking of divine nature. And that phrase, divine nature, being a very cultural use of a phrase, would have been very well understood what he was talking about among pagans. And what Peter does here is he conscripts it, he grabs hold of it, he brings it in and uses it for for the teaching. But people say, well, there's just too much of that, and Peter, as a fisherman from the Galilee, couldn't possibly be that well-versed in the Greek language. To which I reply, you mean after 30 years of mission work in the field? Peter was 30 years by the time he wrote this letter, moving about the Gentile nations, teaching and preaching and living alongside and working with and being in and among Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world in 30 years... You know, they say you can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy. And such is the case with my father, who still, after he came to California when he was 22 years old, 21, 22 years old, he's been there ever since. He's now 82. And he still has a Texas accent. But he talks with California phraseology, which is really weird. You know, you want to go surfing, y'all? I mean, just, I don't, how does that work? 
But he gets California culture. He's comfortable there. He knows California culture. He speaks it, but he still has his accent. Okay, Peter was a Galilean fisherman, but Peter had been in the field. So of course he would know. And if he was a good scholar, he would know how to apply these things to the people with whom or among whom he was doing ministry. So yeah, a a disparate language, heavily Greek themes. You're going to see that throughout. And then there's a doubled down warning. A doubled down warning that some say, here's a problem. The warning is against the false teachers and against the heretics. And again, it fills up most of chapter 2. So why is that a problem for these scholars? Well, they say it ties so closely with the little one-chapter letter to Jude that whoever wrote Second Peter just ripped off Jude and rewrote it. You will see parallels that are very close, and that is absolutely true. And so they say, well, either they draw from the same source... Duh. Of course they draw from the same source. Same Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit inspired Peter. The Holy Spirit inspired Jude. We should expect the two to be similar. But some say, well, no, maybe one drew from the other. And I'm actually okay with that idea. But I can show you why I believe Jude drew from Peter, not Peter drawing from Jude. Why would you say that? Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Okay, Peter says this directly, right? Jude, verse 17, says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Jude is quoting the apostles who were teaching about the mockers to come. Peter, as an apostle, talked about the mockers to come. Who borrowed from who? It's pretty obvious to me that the borrower is Jude. And again, I have no problem with that because Jude even says, hey, I'm quoting the apostles. Jude was not an apostle. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Not an apostle, but, but quoting from the apostles, Peter was an apostle and is speaking directly as he writes this letter. So, uh, there's so much more we could get into, and there are volumes written about all of this, but I am comfortable and confident to tell you, Peter is the one who penned the book, and the Holy Spirit of the living God is the one who sent the book, who inspired the book, and it makes it worthy of our study. This is a precious word. So, verse 1, again of chapter 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who have received a faith of the same kind or the same preciousness as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior. He talks about that we have a faith, note this, a faith received, not a faith produced. You know your faith is received. Your faith was given to you. That may sound strange, But the fact that you have faith, that I have faith, is by the grace of God. He gave us our faith, gave us the ability to believe. Opened our eyes to have faith. I believe He gives everybody that same opportunity. That He's not being selective. Everybody can come to faith. But faith is something that we receive, not something we make up. 
And it's by His righteousness. Note that too. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's, He gives us faith by His righteousness. It's all about Him. I am drawing from Him. I am blessed by Him. And note this at the end of that opening verse. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The King James translates this, of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is wrong. The literal translation is of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because Peter joins Thomas and Paul and John. He even joins the enemies of Jesus who all proclaimed this one. At least the enemy said he claims to be God. Jesus does claim to be God, and all of the others also agree that He is God and Savior, Jesus Himself. And so once again, when we look at the Trinity, we see Jesus as an equal partner of the Trinity, as God fully expressed. Our God and our Savior, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we, we joked about this in 1 Peter. He also says grace and peace be multiplied to you. Paul just says grace and peace. Peter takes it one step further. He's a little bombastic that way. He pushes it. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Listen. The more you know God, the more you know Jesus as Lord, the more grace and peace will multiply in your life. Feeling stressed out, worried, striving? You need more Jesus. Are are, are you heavy-handed, self-righteous, hard-hearted? You need more Jesus. Because only by knowing Jesus do we know grace and offer grace. Only by knowing Jesus do we know peace and offer peace. We're not talking ease. Understand that. Grace and peace is not ease. It's not, oh, the more I know Jesus, the easier my life's going to get. Oh, no. No, and if we just finished First Peter as we did, we understand. The more we know Jesus, the more we may know suffering. As we learn to share the sufferings of Christ, right? We're not talking ease, but we are talking grace and peace. And this is something God has been offering His people for thousands of years. He told Aaron, I want you to bless the people of Israel. And I want you to bless them like this. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace, grace and peace. These come from our Lord and our Father. Verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence or virtue or goodness. That word excellence. Goodness and virtue. God called us by this. His divine power has granted, I've always loved this verse, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Guess what? We have all we need. And more. You want to live? He's granted it to you. You want to be godly? He's given you all that you need. You don't have to go searching somewhere else to find it. Everything pertaining to this has been given to us by His divine power. Peter and John had just healed the lame beggar at the beautiful gate. 
And as they walked into the temple and he is dancing and he's leaping and, and praising God, the people recognized him. They said, this guy's the beggar. He's been there his whole life. We all know him and, he, and he's walking. What is up with this? And the Bible says they were in amazement. And Acts chapter 3, verse 12 says, when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? As if by our own power or the same word there, godliness. Godliness. Peter now says everything pertaining to life and godliness. There, Peter said, it's not by our power or godliness that we made him walk. We didn't do it. Now what they did looked pretty divine. Looked pretty divinely powerful. In the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, get up and walk. And they took his hand and he got up and walked and not just walked. He was dancing. He was jigging a jig. And everybody saw. And as they come around, Peter says this, this godliness. Man, by his own admission, understand, godliness is something only the divine power of God can grant you can grant me. I don't make myself godly. When I try to make myself godly, or I begin to think I'm godly, I become self-righteous. And that's a problem. Because as we already saw in the first verse, and Peter returns to this theme again and again in these opening verses, the righteousness is by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not my righteousness. I don't make myself righteous. I can practice righteousness... I can desire to be righteous. I can pursue righteousness. But the only righteousness that is in me and working through me is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. By His divine power. That's how we become godly. The word godliness there is Eusebia. We've seen this word before. It's actually where the name Eusebius comes from who wrote the history of the church. Eusebia, godliness. It means pious or or religious or better devout. It means to act and behave in a way that looks like God. I like that as a definition, godliness. Sometimes you can hear words like that and think, oh, I need to be godly. No, just act like God. Well, how can I know how to act like God? Well, we saw Him act. We saw Him walk. We saw Him interact as a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to be like God, be like Jesus. You want to be godly? Be Christ-like. Because godliness is Christ-likeness. Godliness is Christ-likeness. If you want to behave like God in this world, you always look to Jesus and let His pattern then be yours. You follow after Him. You do what He did. You think about the things He thought about. You listen to Him. You act as He acted. You pattern your life after the life of Christ. Who has called us by His own glory and excellence. And by the way, as you track down through here, verses 3 and 4, seeing His divine power has granted us. He called us by His own glory and excellence. Verse 4, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. And every one of those He's and His is referring to Jesus. His divine nature. It's Christ we're talking about. And it's Jesus that we're called to be like and to pattern. It's hard to pattern yourself after God. When you go through the Old Testament, you can see how He treats Israel. And you can understand something of His His love and His compassion and His goodness in His dealings with His people. But still there's that distance there. Right? Of this great divine spirit. But then He puts on flesh. 
and He walks among us. And He shows us there is a time to be angry and turn over tables. And He shows us there is a time to weep. And He shows us there's a time to get all after the religious stuff shirts of the Pharisees. And He shows us there's a time to touch the leper. And a time to walk on the water. There's a time to be frustrated with the the apostles. Even to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And there's a time to say, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Live like Jesus. That is godliness. And don't you know we're drawn to it? We were talking about this on Sunday a little bit when we were, when we were listening to heard Rachel's song, Just Jesus. And I share with you, I, I hear that and, and I, I, that's, that's all I need. There is something about Jesus that is just attractive and draws people. It's why people get confused and they say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, but I like Jesus. Well, it's because in seeing Jesus and hearing what He talked about and how He moved and behaved and what He did, you look at Him and there's just something attractive there. That draws us in. By the way, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, but we'll talk about that another time. Just Jesus. We're drawn to His glory and His excellence by His own glory and excellence there at the end of verse 3. And again, excellence is goodness. Same word. When you see goodness in the fruit of the Spirit, same word. It's, It's the word translated excellence or virtue here. And it speaks truly of the nature Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And get this, I'm pointing it out because glory and excellence, better, glory and goodness go hand in hand. Especially where the nature of God is concerned. Glory and goodness. See, Moses said in Exodus 33, show me your glory. Do you remember how God replied? I will make all my goodness pass before you. Because glory and goodness in God are the same thing. They are the stuff of His nature. And so in verse 4, after calling us by His own glory and excellence, Peter writes, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What exactly does that mean? Partakers of divine nature. One of the things I I like about going verse by verse and taking our time through the Bible is we stop and ask. Don't skip by these things. It's so easy to hyper-spiritualize stuff. Oh yeah, we're partakers of His divine nature. And we move right on. Have you stopped to think about what that means? To partake of His divine nature? Very simply and practically, it means to intimately share Jesus. It means to be with Him and, and to uh, truly to consume Christ. That's what Jesus said. You know, in the, in the first century, to share a meal was to connect at a deeply intimate level. Far more than us. We say, hey, let's grab a burger or let's get some pie. And it's like, yeah, we want to hang out, we want a fellowship, and that's all good. But if you had someone into your house in the first century, if you were a Jew in, in Jerusalem, you invited somebody over, and you broke bread together, and you shared the table together, it was incredibly intimate, and even to the point that some considered, if I break bread with you and we break the same bread, we are sharing our DNA. We're eating of the same bread, it's going into me, it's going into you, and therefore you and I are now more alike than we were before. So the meal 
Which is why I think I don't think it was just that Jesus liked to eat, but after the resurrection, we see almost every time we see Jesus, he's like, "Hey, you got a piece of fish?" You know, every time, come on, let's have breakfast. I mean, he's eating all the time. There's an intimacy there, and Jesus tells us on the day after he fed five thousand men. So with women and children, ten, fifteen thousand people, he fed them all. He broke bread, shared it with all of them, and on the very next day, he says in John 6.41, the Jews are grumbling about him because he says, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They're like, we want more bread. And he's like, I am the bread. And they're like, what what does that mean? In John 6.51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Partakers of divine nature. That's what it means. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And this bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. My sarks is the Greek word. And man, that's down and dirty. That, that is as, as a base a word for flesh as you can use. And he says, you've got to eat my flesh if you want to be part of this. Well, of course, the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And I'm convinced some of the teenagers in the crowd were making cannibal jokes. I'm not going to go there right now. But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. These are Jesus' words, and they are radical words. I mean, to be in the crowd on that day, you would have been shocked as a Jewish person. He who eats me, my flesh, my blood, this is an abomination. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died... That is, eating manna in the wilderness? No. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus pushes them right to the brink of intimacy. He just blows right past all cultural norms in that moment and says, listen, this thing that we share together with God is not about religion. And it's not about keeping everything clean and, 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 and everything uh, perfect. And, and, and no, it's about relationship. And you know, relationship in the church is messy business. It's what makes me go on vacation, to be honest. I get to a certain point where like, I, just, I just need a break. You know, the joke that's out there, ministry would be easy if not for all the people. And you know this, that, that church life together... It's not easy. We rub each other the wrong way. We upset with each other. We misunderstand each other. We try to figure this whole thing out. And the whole time Jesus is just looking at this mess of the church. And I think He loves it. I'm not talking about dissension and division. But I think He loves when we're working hard to figure each other out. When we're willing to take the time to pray for each other. To know each other. To find out why this brother is upset with me. Why is this sister taking a different approach than I would take? And we walk out this faith together. 
The togetherness of the church. You want to partake of the divine nature? Start there. Start feeding with brothers and sisters and together we consume Christ. Which means we are becoming more like Him. We're looking to Him as the example. And as we look at that example, we share Him together. We're like in this fantastic feast. And Jesus is the main course. So He goes so far as to say, if you want to know Me personally, intimately, you must consume Me. Now, thankfully, Peter doesn't just leave it there because even now we're at a point where it's like, wow, that's still that's hard to... How does that play out? How do we do that? You know, again, spiritually it sounds great. Consume Christ. Ooh, two C's, consume Christ. That works well. I can write that in my notes and that's nice. That'll look good in the margin of my Bible. Consume Christ. What does it mean? How does that work? Partaking the divine nature. What specifically is Peter referring to when he says this? Well, let's unpack it. Again, back in verse 1, he refers to the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, a partaker of the divine nature is righteous. If I'm going to become like Jesus, I am being made righteous. And that's not like a 1960s righteous dude, you know, which was a surface phrase in Southern California. My dad would say, righteous y'all. Righteousness, being right with God. Listen, get this. If you want to overcome entrenched sin, now you all know what your issue is or has been. Something in your life that took hold and you fight it and you fight it and you fight it and you just don't seem to win. It's still there. Long-term corruption. Embedded lust. Deeply rooted habitual desires of the flesh. How do you deal with these things and call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ? Listen, to just say no is a no-go. It will not work. I'm just going to say no to the sin. Well, that's great. That's, I mean, it's a good start. But it will not survive the day. I promise you it will fail. Determining I'm going to do right is a futile fight. Because it's by His righteousness and not mine. So just saying no, it's a good start. And determining I'm going to do the right thing, that's a good attitude. But neither one of these will work to conquer sin in our lives, especially that stuff that we have fought for years. The only thing that works is partaking of the divine nature. That is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, or as the old Graham Kendrick song used to sing, and I love this, Knowing You, Jesus. Knowing You. There is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love You, Lord. And I'm telling you right now, if you want to overcome deeply entrenched sin, you will not do it unless you consume Christ. If you, if you avoid Jesus or if you're not spending time with Jesus, then you will not overcome lust or corruption. You will not defeat the flesh. It is only by His divine power, His glory, His divine nature, His excellent goodness. So practically speaking, you have a big sin you're fighting, you just need to be with Jesus. You need to invite Jesus into that realm. 
You need to consider Jesus at all times. Bring Him in. Talk to Him about it. Confess it to Him. Walk it out with Him. And again, practically speaking, man, and I tell this to people, if they come and they say, I'm, I, I can't get out of this, this, I, this sin has claws in me, I say, you need to spend some time just reading through the Gospels. Well, thanks, teaching pastor. I mean, what, what, what does that do for me? It gets you with Jesus. You spend time with Jesus. I can't say this enough because I'm telling you, time spent with Jesus is what changes a heart. You can memorize the commandments. It will not change your heart. You can know Scripture right and left and and call it out by memory. Oh, it'll have an impact. God's Word does not come back empty. But it is in knowing Jesus that sin gets crushed. It's in knowing Jesus that I find, man, I don't even want to do that. I don't even enjoy that. That has no lure, no uh, attraction to me anymore. Went and saw The Incredibles 2. How many of you have seen The Incredibles 2, right? Some of us. It's incredible. (laughs) My kids, I I actually went and saw it with my brother, which is really funny. Two men in their 50s going to see The Incredibles. I don't know. It's what he wanted to see for his birthday. So, okay, Ron, I'll take you to The Incredibles. So, uh, and I I saw it and I came home and I told my kids, yeah, I saw The Incredibles. And they're like, Dad, you didn't take us. I'll, I'll, I'll take you, I said, but I only have four problems with the movie. The H word, the D word, and they said God's name in vain twice. And... I mean, in our culture, it's just four words. You know, I mean, that's not bad, considering. It's just four words. And I sat there, and every time one of those little words popped up, especially God's name in vain, I can almost handle other curse words far more than when I hear God's name just thrown out. And, and I, I sat there, and I remember, and so I do this, I make a little raspberry sound anytime something bothers me in a movie. <laughs> I do. We'll be watching a TV show and someone will say, yeah, wow, back when the earth was first formed billions of years ago, and I'll go, you know. My kids are used to it. They all wait for it. They look at me. Are you going to make the bet? Yeah, okay, there we go. And I, I'm sitting there in the theater watching The Incredibles, and, and one of the little characters used God's name in vain, and I went, Ron goes, I mean, don't worry about it. Here's the thing. Am I this righteous guy? No, I just, that just... If I was sitting right there with Jesus, and I was, things like that, suddenly I just don't like them. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be there. I don't want to experience that. Why? Because of Jesus. Not because it's offensive to my you know, religious format and my self-righteous understanding. Ooh, I don't want to get dirty. No, I just don't like it. Because I want to be with Jesus. and I like Him. His glory. His divine power. His excellent goodness. Well, verse 5. He said, I mean, this is how we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. By His divine nature. By His power. Verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. And he uses this word, supply. 
in your faith supply these things. And you could track that word. You could use the word all the way through with every single one of them. Supply moral excellence. Supply knowledge. Supply self-control. Supply perseverance. Supply godliness. Supply brotherly kindness. Supply love. Because it's inherent in what he's saying. Supply these things. Well, then what does that word mean? How do I supply moral excellence to my faith? See, he begins with faith. In your faith, which was given to you, remember, we received this precious faith. It was given to us. So now, what do I do with this faith? I supply it. The word supply, epikorageo, means to add a generous amount of nourishment to something. When I was a kid, my mom came home from the grocery store one day determined that we were going to be healthy. And she came home with this jar full of this stuff. Some of you remember these days, wheat germ. (laughs) Wheat germ today would send someone who's gluten-free right through the window. Wheat germ, I mean, it's like like sudden death, but back then, no, you got to have wheat germ. We're putting wheat germ on our cereal, wheat germ in our sandwiches, wheat germ on our chocolate cake. I mean, it was disgusting. Wheat germ everywhere. Germinating wheat How many times through your life have you noted that we're always coming up with supplements? We are always doing that. Man, go into Costco today. They've got an entire area and a full-on wall that is just supplements to the ceiling. I go in there and it's as bad as me being in a library. You know, Barnes & Noble freaks me out because so many books. Walking into Costco, Cheryl will say, hey, can you pick up a jar of those fish oil tablets? And I'm like... Where do you even start? What kind of fish? I don't even know that. (laughs) Supplements right and left. And we got to have our supplements to nourish our bodies. Well, you could call (laughs) these seven things healthy supplements to our faith. But these are not supplements that might give you a little more energy on a rainy week. Vitamin D3. I hear that works. These are the kind of supplements that take your faith right into eternity. These are the kind of supplements that take the faith that was given to you and turn it into, get this, godliness. They make you righteous, not self-righteous. But you start to wear His righteousness as you supply faith with these things. Eternal health benefits, check them out. He says first... Applying all diligence. Man, work at this. Practice this. Go after this. Be passionate about this. Applying all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence. Or again, that word excellence is goodness. Virtue. A moral virtue. A moral nature. I, I think of the, the Peanuts comic strip. You know, Charlie Brown and Snoopy. And, and one of my favorite characters is Pigpen. He's never clean. Ever. You never see, because that's Pigpen. He's always got that dust floating off of him in the cartoons. And there was a, a recent cartoon I was watching with the kids. It was so funny. One of the girls in the Peanuts gang says, Pigpen, you're absolutely filthy. And he says, yes, but I have clean thoughts. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my respect for Pigpen went, click, you know, clean thoughts. Moral virtue. Supply moral excellence, moral goodness, moral virtue into your faith. Add that into your faith. 
You know, one of the reasons that Christians struggle with the kind of deep, godly relationships that either we think we're supposed to have or we really do want. I want to have a deep relationship with God. I I sit here and worship and it just moves me, but then I get out into my life and I start doing other things and I I lose I want to have this, this great relationship. You know why we struggle with that? Because lax morality keeps Jesus at arm's length. Supply moral goodness. Supply your faith with that which is good. The Spirit tells us, do this. Supplement your faith with morality, with with virtue. You know, some of these things... If if I gave the same example of The Incredibles 2 having four cuss words in it, at Oak Harbor or Anacortes High School, if I was doing a lecture with teenagers and I mentioned, could you believe there were four words like that in Incredibles 2? They would laugh me off the stage. Because our culture is just so lax. Christians would hear that and go, boy, he's a little uptight, isn't he? Couldn't enjoy the Incredibles just because of two, you know, an H, a D, and two Gs? I mean, come on. We are morally lax. And, and there is a practical side to this that our moral laxity keeps Jesus at a distance. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So as we just embrace the things of the world and watch the shows we watch and listen to the music we listen to and read the books we read and all of that, we we don't realize it, but practically speaking, we're saying, Jesus, I want you to just stand right outside the room. I've got some things I need to do here. And it keeps Him at arm's length. You want a close, personal, vibrant, real relationship with Jesus Christ? Supply moral virtue. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, Philippians 4.8. The Apostle John is all over that in his first letter. He talks a lot about practicing these things. He says in 1 John 2.15, Don't love the world. Or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So apply that. Supply moral virtue into your faith. And then in moral excellence... Supply knowledge. In other words, go right back to knowing Jesus and all things that are Godward. Spend time on understanding Him, on studying Him, on on knowing who He is. And isn't that interesting? This idea of moral excellence, moral virtue, it's bookended by faith in Christ and knowing Christ. To your faith in Jesus, add moral virtue. And then you're right back to, and knowledge. Supply knowledge. You want to keep knowing Jesus. I'm still finding out things about my wife I didn't know. And that's a lot of fun for me. You know? Married 34 years. July. And I'm learning. I still learn things. And that's cool. We will never finish learning about Jesus. And that's the stuff of eternity right right there. Finding out more about Him. So, knowledge. Knowledge of Jesus in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. In your knowledge, supply self-control. Now, there's not a word that you hear at a party. Hey, it's Friday night. Let's all go out and exhibit some self-control. 
It's going to be great. You hear, let's get wild. Let's go nuts. Let's be berserk. You know, No. Self-control. And again, the world hears words like self-control. Some of you are smiling at me right now because I mean, you just wouldn't say that to your friends. Hey, you guys want to go out and get self-controlled? And yet, you know what? In self-control, I have a handle on things. I understand my environment. There, there is sometimes a huge gap between what I know to be true and what I do. You know what bridges the gap? Self-control. Self-control is it's applying what I know to what I do. How I think to how I act. Self-control is what does that. And it means literally to hold oneself together. And it's an athlete's term. See, the track runner doesn't go out on the track and go, you know, the race is coming up, so I'm just going to get nuts. I'm going to run all around, and I'm going to get as drunk as I possibly can because that's going to help me run better. You know, my daughters are about to, this weekend, by the way, if you don't have tickets, go see The Lion King. Okay, the ballet slipper is putting it on this, this weekend, and my daughters are in it, Brandy's in it, and... Can I, can I tell them about you? Can I embarrass you just for a second? Okay. Uh, Brandy is sitting all the way in the back over here. Brandy is Scar. Okay. I was at the, uh, dress rehearsal last weekend. They were all in full makeup and everything. I had nightmares for like two nights after seeing her in that makeup. It's, it's frightening. <laughs> Miss Diane at the ballet slipper would not tell her girls to come to the ballet after a long night of heavy partying. She would say, self-control. You need to be self-controlled. It's an athlete's term, by the way, self-control. Paul uses it, 1 Corinthians 9.25, and I'm sorry for embarrassing you, Brandy, I really am, but she's amazing. She's really, she is scar, but not here, but there she is. Everyone, Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. We understand that with athletics, Got to be self-controlled. You want to win? You got to make sure you're taking your supplements and, and you're doing your workout and you're getting the rest that you need. And, and here we are in the week before the ballet and my girls, we're being strict with their, with their behavior and how late they can be up and make sure they're getting rest and they're, they're taking care of themselves. Self-control. Well, why do athletes do that? Paul says they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. Man, if the athlete is going to exhibit self-control, how much more we as spiritual athletes running for the prize, how much more should we exhibit self-control knowing what is out ahead? Self-control closes out Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. He ends with self-control. That's part of the deal. You have the Holy Spirit in you, you will have self-control. And by the way, self-control, you can put it this way, it's faith, morality, and knowledge in action. It's taking all those things and it's acting upon them. And then he says, and supplement your self-control with perseverance. Why? Because a change in behavior does not guarantee a change in circumstance. Just because you begin to live more controlled does not mean that your circumstances will make that control easier. Another way to put it is just because I get a certain sin behavior under control doesn't mean it's not going to try to resurface later. It will. Guaranteed. I talked about long-term embedded sin before. 
Yeah, something like that. You feel good. I've overcome that. I'm, I'm walking with Jesus. It's all good. I guarantee you, because this, the, the devil is wily in this, he will try to bring it back. Right when you think you've conquered it and you are over it and you're done, he will hit you with it again. Which is why we need to add the supplement of perseverance. We stay with this. Not just this week. Not just through this year. For the rest of our lives. That is perseverance. James 1.12 Yaakov wrote, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And by the way, the last time we see the word perseverance in the Bible... It's applied to those who refuse to bow to the mark of the beast in the tribulation. Revelation 14.12 tells us here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. you got to stick. And we as brothers and sisters in this fellowship or any church fellowship, one of the main things we ought to be doing with each other is encouraging perseverance. Stay with it. You can run this race. You've been given the faith to do it. Supply perseverance. Stay at it. By the way, when that old sin tries to creep up and make its way back in, and you're persevering, you crush it even more. And it'll probably try and come back again down the road, so you crush it again. By His righteousness and the faith given to you, supplying all of these things. And remember, Jesus said, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And that is the tribulation that he's talking about. Persevere now so that you don't have to be one of those who perseveres then during the tribulation. What does that mean, Rick? I'll tell you in like, like a month and a half, I promise. Because we're going to talk about it and really seek to understand the whole chronology of the last days and the end times and what the book of Revelation teaches. So wait for it, Lord willing. And, you know, if he comes before we get there, he'll tell you. You'll understand. In your perseverance, supply, supplement, godliness. We already talked about that before. That Eusebia, that, that Christ-like behavior. So you want to begin behaving like. As you persevere, walk like Christ. Act like Christ. Think about what He did and do that. In your godliness, He says, brotherly kindness. Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the word. Why do we need to supply brotherly kindness into godliness? Because true godliness is not self-righteousness. Godliness is not pious pride. It is humble. And by the way, the more godly you are, the more other-centered you will be. The more like Christ you become, the more you will care for those around you, for those who are lost, for those who are struggling, for those who are sinning. The more like Christ you are, the more you will love and care for and have compassion for everybody else. So godliness is not, check me out, I'm solid. I've got it all together. Godliness, Christ-likeness, is humbly loving with brotherly kindness all those who are around us. And in your brotherly kindness, supply agape. Love. Now there's something we should know about these seven supplements that he gives. 
And that is very simply that we don't pick and choose the ones we want. This is not a list for you to go, okay, got that, got that, pretty good on that, Uh, maybe I should work on this one this week. That's not what he's describing here. This list is progressive from start to finish. This list is growing. This is a prescriptive course to agape love. Agape love. Starts with faith. We're given that faith, right? Peter had the faith. He had the faith after three and a half years, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, even after his failure, Peter had the faith. He loved Jesus. He trusted Him. And so when Jesus said, Simon Peter, do you agape me? He said, yes, Lord, I brotherly kindness you. He had the faith and the faith works its way toward agape and Peter wasn't there yet. Even even at the end, even right before Jesus ascended, Peter hadn't comprehended the agape quite yet. In some ways, you could say even at the writing of this letter at the end of Peter's life, he is still on the shores of the Galilee with Jesus who is compelling him to go from Philadelphia to agape. And we see this in both of Peter's letters very strongly. Move from Philadelphia into the city of agape. He got it big time. And I think we could easily say that Philadelphia to agape, brotherly to unconditional love, was the theme of Peter's entire life. If there was anything that Peter desired in his life, it was to move into agape love for everyone else around him. And this list takes us there. Again, from faith to moral virtue, to knowledge, to self-control, to perseverance, to godliness, to brotherly love, and ultimately to agape, these things work together to bring us into the agape that God desires for us. So work the list. Hey, feel free to work the list. He says, applying all diligence, which means we take this and we think about it. And we do apply this. And we return to this passage and think, okay, moral excellence, alright, so this week I'm not going to that movie. I'm not going to experience this thing. I'm going to say no to these things over here. Knowledge, I'm going to spend a little extra time in the Word this week. Or maybe sitting with brothers and sisters and just talking about Jesus to understand more maybe of what they know of Him. And you start to work the list, applying the diligence, knowing that the end goal is agape. And verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you, (coughs) excuse me, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge, there it is again, knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The true knowledge, which is not book learning knowledge to Peter. It's not education. It's knowing Jesus. It's consuming Christ, as we've been talking about. It's feeding upon the person. It's intimacy. And Peter says, if these things are increasing, you will not be useless. I just want to be more useful in my church. Then go right here. Do this. Well, how does that make me more useful? Trust me, it will. It will. Your usefulness will expand. Your fruitfulness will be amazing. And he says, if these things are increasing, that word increasing is best translated super abounding. It's a big word. You know, you want to superabound in anything? Do it in this. Let this superabound in you. Grow in this. And remember all the while, as you're growing, as you're moving through this, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So down through verse 8, we're still in the context of verse 1. A precious faith by the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And verse 9 he says, For he who lacks these qualities, watch this, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Who is Peter talking to? Christians. Christians. He's telling Christians, if you lack these qualities, you're blind. He's saying to Christians, if you don't get this, you're short-sighted. You're born again, but now you're blind again. (laughs) You're saved, but you're short-sighted. I've been there. I can be there very easily to be blind in our faith. You know, Paul says the God of this world is blinding the eyes of the unbelievers. And he's talking about those who don't believe in Jesus. But I think the principle works. If I am not believing Jesus, I go blind. I become short-sighted. So you work the list and you, you, you walk in the faith that He's given you and you, you make for agape love and your eyes open and you hear better. And you're not short-sighted for these things. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make, watch this, certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. That's beautifully written. Make certain of His calling and His choosing you, verse 10. Why? Why do do I need to make certain about this? Because that assurance of my salvation is what defines and motivates a well-supplemented faith. Does that make sense to you? That I know I've been saved, so I stop trying to save myself. Salvation happened on the cross. Jesus did it. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. I can just believe in it. I can trust Him for it. Salvation is a done deal in Jesus Christ. And once I realize that, now the motivation is to live for Him because I am free to be a saved man. I have been set free. And walking in that salvation, Peter says, don't forget. Don't forget. Man, be diligent to be certain of this. That He's called you. That He has chosen you. And, and if you practice these things, then you'll, you'll never stumble. You'll never stumble. I don't know, I feel like I'm, what if I stumble? Well, hold that thought. The assurance. You know what Jesus knew? I love this. John 13, verse 3. Tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into His hands. He knew that He had come forth from God and He was going back to God. John tells us that. He knew these things. And so, he washed the apostles' feet. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going. Guess what? You know where you've come from. You have come from the cross. Called, chosen by Jesus Christ, I know where I've come from. I know what's behind me, the salvation that has bought me, what is ahead of me. I know where I'm going. And that's what Peter is putting together here. Make certain of this, practice these things, and you will never stumble. The word stumble there. He's referring to the final finish line. 
You'll not stumble when you cross that line. The word stumble means to fall into misery or become wretched. You're not going to become wretched. You know that you've been called. You know that you've been chosen. The Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews 6.11, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. I'm going to realize, I'm going to keep in this. I've been called, I've been chosen. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm going to run with these things. I'm going to supply faith all the way to agape. And I will cross that finish line which flows beautifully into verse 11. For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Now I don't know about you, but if you just read that sentence, we wouldn't talk that way. Okay? If I gave you directions to the bridge, say you've never been to the fellowship here. And I gave you directions, I wouldn't at the end of it say, and by the way, after you turn left onto Troxel, you're going to hang a left into the driveway, and the entrance will be abundantly supplied to you. That's weird. That doesn't fit with my language. It's a strange phraseology. But not to a Greek athlete. Not to a Greek athlete. You see, when a victorious Olympian returned to his hometown, everybody turned out. There'd be a parade, there'd be cheers rising up from the crowd, and wreaths and flowers would be thrown, and speeches given, and songs sung. It was a true victor's welcome, and they called it the abundant entrance. That's what Peter's referring to here. Your entrance into the kingdom, abundantly supplied, you will have the abundant entrance. That is Peter's description of our heavenly homecoming. Now, can you even imagine that day? I can't say that without smiling. The angels right now rejoice more over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous peoples. Can you imagine the day we all go home? Angels busting loose, losing all (laughs) self-control, cheering and shouting and applauding for you and you're walking in there kind of feeling a little sheepish. Having been a sheep, you know, you feed it. I, wow, what are they cheering for? It's like the kids on the soccer field. If you've ever had kids play soccer, and the end of the game, and it doesn't matter if they haven't scored a single goal, the parents line up and they put their hands forward. One parent on either side, and the kids run through while the parents are cheering. Woo! And the kids just feel like Olympians. Even the kid who kicked it in the wrong goal, he's an Olympian. And that's our heavenly homecoming which has been abundantly supplied, our abundant entrance is ready. We're going to go through that. And Peter wants to make these things absolutely clear. He does this in the first chapter before he gets to the second chapter, which is a little heavier and we will deal with next week. But verse 12, he says, Therefore, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. I'm about to lay aside my earthly dwelling which is a translator's way of translating the word skenoma, which is tent. Time to break camp. 
about to roll up my tent. Peter's saying it's, it's just about over here. Paul used the same exact phraseology in 2 Corinthians 5.1. We know that if the earthly tent, the skenoma, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. For indeed, verse 4 he says, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal... That is, these skenomas, these tents, for some of you they're lean-tos, but whatever, these tents, mortal life will be swallowed up by eternal life. And I'm about to lay aside mine. And you know what I love that Peter does here? He says, I'm going to remind you of these things even though you already know them. Do you realize almost every single thing we studied tonight you've heard? I mean, if, if you're following Jesus and if you have for very long, you've heard this. I haven't told you anything new. I haven't shared any bright new revelations or any stunning new truths that were just you know, brought up in the last week. This is the same stuff that has been taught for 2,000 years. And you know what? It is all we need for life and godliness. It's all we need. We need to be reminded. We need to pour over these things again and again. I hear Peter say, I'm just going to stir you up. I'm just going to remind you of some things. And it's like, Peter! I mean, no final prophecy update? You're about to die? Give us something, man. Give us a new program we can follow that's going to stir everything up. No, what I'm going to stir up for you, Peter says, is your memory. I'm going to stir up what you know. I'm going to remind you of the things that you've learned. And you persevere in that. And you walk those things out. Practice them. Be faithful with them. Keep up these supplements of your precious faith unto agape love. Because you know, God can't lie. He is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. He is truth. And God is the one who tells us the day is fast approaching when we will break camp when we will lay aside these tents and we will forever be changed. What a marvelous prescription and Holy Spirit of the living God. I pray that You will help us to walk in these. And Lord Jesus, I just got to thank You again for Your righteousness that You have already given. In Jesus' name, Amen.